0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world changing ideas and debate. Hello, I'm Julian Bugini. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event hosted by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Percival. Rob is the head of food policy at the Soil Association and a campaigner and writer. His expertise in food policy and food sustainability has informed his fascinating new book, The Meat Paradox Eating Empathy and the future of meat, which has been widely praised both for its intellectual nuance and its powerful challenge. In the the book, Rob explores humanity's relationship with meat from the dawn of Homo sapiens to the present day, arguing that it has always been emotionally and ethically complicated. Rob, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, I just want to welcome everyone to join in the conversation today in the live chat by using the hashtag #RSAEatingMeat, meat. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. So Rob, let's just start off by um, getting a handle on the key concept behind this book. Uh, so what what is the meat paradox and, and when did you first come across
1: it? So this is a term borrowed from social psychology, um, from a, a body of research that's emerged um, just in the last decade. Um, and broadly speaking, it, it relates to the, the contradictions in our relationship with the animals that we, we consume. Um, we often seem to say one thing and do another. Many of us say that we care about animal welfare, but it's intensively farmed, low welfare animals, which make up the bulk of our diet in the UK, particularly chicks and pigs. sorry, chickens and pigs. Um, yeah. Uh, one in three of us claims to be eating less meat. Uh, We're going flexitarian or veggie or vegan, Um, but actually the the data shows no meaningful decline in overall consumption. So there's some sort of split going on. And uh, psychologists um, are beginning to understand that this is shaped in part by set of psychological pressures cognitive pressures uh derived from our our empathy we we care about animals we don't want to see them harmed um and when we recognize that they are harmed for our uh, consumption um we we feel this sense of dissonance and this uh generates all sorts of fascinating and unexpected consequences and the book traces some of those consequences through our culture and and through other cultures um and as you say back back into human history well we
0: perhaps would say say a little bit more coming up in minutes about how, how deep this sort of goes. but I mean it is very evident that I think it's pretty incontroversial that there are at the very least tensions in people's attitudes towards meat. I always think it's quite um, evident in, in pet food actually in the sense that people are feeding their pets, animals which are uh, often raised in pretty horrific conditions. So I mean so th- this is around this people have this. Um, there are ways people uh, deal with it, rationalize it every day some of which are pretty pretty weak. So what are the kind of strategies that people have for, for managing this, this tension?
1: Well, first of all, we, as, as a society, uh, tell a story about our relationship with the animals around us. And we, at the, at the center of that is this process of categorization. Some, some animals are food animals, some are wild animals. Um, And and our relationship is is shaped in a profound way by that categorization. We we tend to think of food animals um, as having uh, lower capacities for for sentience and intelligence. Um, They're less morally valuable. Um, uh, This is what um, psychologists have been discovering this is all going on beneath the surface um, of of thought. We don't necessarily realize that this is how we look at these animals Um, and we like to, or or we find ways of detaching um, from, from their death. Um, We're not involved in many of us in in the process of their um, sort of production or, or, and we're certainly not involved in in, in their slaughter. Um, And we um, uh, build on that physical dissociation with subtle forms of cognitive dissociation. So we we find ways of talking and thinking about animals, which means that we don't really um, recognize when, when we're faced with a plateful of meat that, that there has been an animal behind it, um, that there has been a death involved. And we find um, uh, through this mixture of um, sort of denial and evasion and narrative and, and rite and ritual, a route through these tensions, which, which means that for the most part, they don't really bother us, but, but they can be profoundly disturbing when we're confronted with um, the the reality of of what's involved in meat production. Uh,
0: Yeah and of course in sort of modern industrialized society that kind of distancing is easier because most people aren't actually close to the the animals that they eat but of course for most of human history people were closer and you you talk about the various ways in which uh, cultures have sort of come up with sort of narratives that help them to manage this, in particular narratives of consent and of contract. Could you say a little bit about those and how how widespread are they?
1: So the book explores um, uh, how how these tensions are handled in in very different cultures, indigenous hunting cultures. And what anthropologists um, have found is that despite the the dazzling sort of diversity displayed across these cultures, there are recurring um, characteristics in, in terms of how they relate to animals. It's typically required that the hunter will um, have to ask for permission from some sort of spiritual guardian before hunting an animal. It's often said that the animal um, itself, the individual animal, will have to give its consent to be killed and through a a process of of ritual treatment of the body um, it's believed that the the animal's soul will be reborn um, in another body and these all point towards a sense of um, sort of moral and metaphysical anxiety associated with killing. Um, and the complex rites and rituals which you find associated with meat in, in every culture, uh, meat is typically the most uh, tabooed food, um, are, are ways of managing this this uh, this really difficult fact that um, uh, eating involves killing. Uh, and, and this idea of consent recurs throughout um, these narratives across um, different Indigenous hunting cultures and in our own culture to a certain degree. We talk of this sort of contractual relationship with domesticated animals. We say that they um, they they give us their bodies and in return we give them a good life, we we look after them and so on and there's this sort of implicit understanding that there's uh, consent involved um, even if there is no literal consent um, that's even possible. Yeah I mean in the book you you talk a lot about our sort of history uh, going
0: way back to the the dawn of of Homo sapiens as I said in the introduction and you kind of push this argument quite strongly that actually a lot, a great deal of human culture is pretty much explained by this need to deal with what you call this sort of ethical anxiety, and you even think that applies to to cave art. Uh, You're you're suggesting that cave painting is driven partly by this meat paradox, how how is that
1: so? So when you um, look back in the the archaeological record, um, for the earliest evidence that our relationship with animals had been, had become complicated in some sense, um, ethically or or, or culturally complicated. The earliest material evidence uh, arises around 40,000 years ago where where our ancestors began painting in caves, crafting their images, making art of of various forms. Um, And we really don't know what these images um, were about, but we know that they were primarily motivated by animals. For for 30,000 years, um, they they crawled into dark recesses and painted upon the walls, and it was um, repeatedly and and overwhelmingly animal images that they painted. Um, And we don't know what they're about, necessarily, but when you look at uh, contemporary cultures, um, and these people who were painting in these caves were as contemporary as us, they were fully modern, they were um, physiologically, anatomically cognitively modern. Um, When you look at uh, contemporary cultures where where people living in close proximity to animals are involved in in hunting them and killing them, um, we we find this this, uh, substrate of of moral anxiety, which exercises a profound influence over their culture. It's a really formative influence. Some of the most um, important narratives, rituals, uh, social behaviors are all oriented around maintaining the right relationship um, with the animal world um, I- in a context where, where you are killing and consuming those animals. Um, so it's um, partly speculative, but it seems to me entirely reasonable to think that this the, this, uh, this, this formative influence stretches back um, thousands of years. Um, and there are several cave art scholars who have, have voiced uh, similar ideas who, who find that in these caves, evidence of a, a process of um, a ritual restitution in relation to the animals that are killed and consumed. So this tension exists
0: in some form. I think that's pretty uh, undeniable. Uh, so there's a tension between, on the one hand, we, we say we love animals. And on the other hand, we, we kill and eat them. Um, it seems like there are two obvious ways to we could potentially seek to eliminate this, this tension. So let's start with the first obvious one. Don't eat meat, right? So if we don't eat meat, we don't have to suffer this tension because we love animals and we don't eat them. End of story. So um, but your book isn't a vegan polemic. Um, so why do you think that's that way out, that simple way out isn't perhaps as uh, fruitful as it may first appear, perhaps?
1: Mm. Well, I, I explore the role that the meat playing has, sorry, meat eating has played um, throughout our evolution um, uh, and in relation to, to sort of diverse um uh, societies embedded in different ecosystems. And, and it's typically been the case throughout human, e- um, human evolution and throughout human history. That we've needed to balance the the needs of our biology against the possibilities of our environment and that's always meant eating animals there's been a a degree of necessity uh, involved in our animal consumption and i don't think that we've transcended that today i think that as as individuals in in, in modern western society it's quite easy to be vegan or to adopt a wholly plant-based diet if you walk into a, a supermarket you you don't need to pick up the the pork sausages you can pick up the um the 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 plant-based sausages um but when you look at how to uh, build a sustainable farming system, uh, nourish a population, wherein lots of people are um, suffering from food insecurity, respond to the climate and nature crises, um, it becomes a lot more complicated. And there's actually, I think, a really important role for animals in our um, in our farming system, uh, in, in our diets in some contexts, um, so that there is, I think, a, a persistent necessity. But the, the, that necessity, I don't think, provides ethical closure. I don't think it means that it's therefore Okay, um, that we that we kill animals uh, and consume them. And I think that we need to have a much more honest process of negotiation as to what the most ethical food system looks like in these indigenous cultures that I discuss, There's this recurring ethic that, that turns up again and again, which says that you should kill only what you need, which seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable Principle in which to base a a, a, a sort of um, set of ethics around animal consumption, and we're nowhere near that in our society. We're really not um, limiting consumption to that which is necessary. We're not even having an honest conversation about what that might look like. So the book hopes to um, open this up a bit and and prompt that that sort of conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of you know vegans today would perhaps acknowledge the fact historically, meat eating has been a necessity, but it's very common for people to say it just it just no longer is and they point to issues around nutrition um but there are you say there are issues around farming what why is actually animal agriculture uh, important to sustainable farming
1: well i'd say that um animal agriculture is as it's typically um uh um, embodied in the world is, is a huge problem um these industrialized systems of um of meat production and dairy production are, are hugely damaging um, in an environmental sense, and they and they typically entail low well low levels of welfare and issues for, for human well being as well. Um, but in the sort of um, more sustainable farming systems, where you're minimising agrochemical inputs, you're easing reliance on fossil fuels, you're you're nurturing uh, soil health and biodiversity across the farm. Uh, animals, particularly grazing animals, can play a really important role in helping to cycle nutrients, uh, bring the soil back to life, uh, shape the landscape, um, and they they can in a nutritional sense turn sort of marginal lands into nutrient-dense foods. Um, So there there is, I think, a really important role there. Um, That doesn't mean we all have to eat meat, and and actually I think a a large proportion of of the population could and, and perhaps should be wholly plant based or, or far more plant based. Um, but uh, it, it's clear that um, there's no easy solution to any of this. Um, so when you hear people saying that we just remove all animals from the picture and then you have a sustainable farming system, I think that's highly dubious.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, one, one of the I think strengths of your book is there's, there's a lot of really sort of good hard information there. And it really points the, the ways in which there's some, some simplistic arguments because not all agriculture is the same. But it is true that the majority of agriculture is of a fairly um, scary kind. Some one of the stats that stuck out for me was that um well, a couple here, in the past half century, the global population of farm animals has tripled, right, tripled in fifty years, while the populations of wild animals have declined by two-thirds, and that globally roughly forty percent of all arable land is used to grow feed crops such as soy and maize, mostly for animals housed in indoor systems and in the UK roughly 50% of arable land is used for this purpose, so it is a pretty um, grim picture of where we've gone, but, uh, but going back a, a bit to this issue of this balance necessity, I think this is really very interesting because um, you're saying that you acknowledge there is and has been a kind of necessity to uh, eating meat and animal products, but that doesn't close the moral argument. I think a lot of people would, would assume that, you know, if you have to do something, it's, well, it's morally OK. I mean, that is the justification. So I'm, I'd just like to hear a little bit more about why you think it doesn't close down the ethics. Why isn't it at the end of the story to say it, it's got to be done, therefore it's morally OK, particularly if you think of populations such as Inuit, who absolutely mm-hmm. depended on, on animal foods and couldn't have survived without it. It, it seems it seem odd to some people to think that there's any moral issue left over once
1: we've established that, yeah, they've, they've got to do it. Right, and I think that um, that there's an important distinction to be drawn between um, uh, the sort of construction of a moral justification in the abstract and our um, embodied experience, our ethical experience. Um, I think uh, if you want a, a, a rational stance on, on whether, um, as an Inuit hunter, you're um, justified in, in eating this this deer. Then, then it's quite easy to, to reach that conclusion. Yes, of course, of course you are. It's, it's necessary. That's that's what's available in this environment, which is your your home. Um, but the act of killing that deer might still be um, profoundly distressing um, when you uh, begin to empathize with the animal that you're engaged with. Um, either actively, um, perhaps you've been stalking the animal through the forest. um, And this is a recurring theme in in the literature in order to, as an indigenous hunter in various of these um, environments, in order to find, lure and locate the animal and then kill them, you have to empathize with them. Um, But that brings a a degree of moral anxiety and ethical distress, um, upon the moment of their their death. Um, And even in these societies where you have a a narrative that that reassures you that the animal will will be reborn, even where there is this narrative of consent and permission that has been granted, um, we still find um, an expression in in the the testimony of these hunters that it's a a profoundly distressing act. It can feel like murder. Um, And this word recurs throughout the literature for over the past um, hundred years. Um, Many of the the rites and rituals um, that surround meats in these traditional societies are there to differentiate um, that, that act of killing from, from wanton murder. Um, so there's, um, and, and the, the book explores um, some of the, the roots of this, um, looking at convergent evidence from uh, cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary biology and infant development, I- exploring why in this embodied encounter, there can be this, this ethical dimension, which is um, uh, difficult to, to argue away or, or reason away in the abstract.
0: Yeah, I, 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 can, I can see that. I suppose The question I've got is, is how possible it is to come to some kind of, you know, a, a relationship with the animal in which you, you don't have anxiety, you may have other emotions, um, because thinking again, how, how would you eliminate this paradox? Well, I've suggested on one side, it's to not eat animals. On the other side, it's to kind of come to a different understanding of what it means to love and respect animals and an understanding on which that is not incompatible with the killing and eating of them. And I suppose before reading your book, I was kind of persuaded that there are people who have a deep sensitivity to the natural world and to animals. And they develop a kind of a a different relationship, which is not sentimental, but nor is it a a detached one, nor is one of turning off their emotions, where they don't seem to have this kind of dissonance or anxiety. There may be a slight element of discomfort to a certain degree, but it's, it's quite managed. And I, if I think about, you know, you work for the Soil Association, so you, you know many people who work with animals, farm with animals, Helen Browning, your CEO, Patrick Holden, who used to be part of the Soil Association. Uh, you know, there are these, these people who, who you you've met who, who work with animals, they love the animals, did you really think they all of them are experiencing a deep
1: moral anxiety about it no i don't um and and i think that you're you're quite right that there are uh there are different ways that we can handle this fundamental tension different ways that we can um uh, position ourselves in relation to the the potential to, to, to feel those um uh, th- that moral anxiety and those conflicted emotions um, and I think there are um, uh, among us that they're, they're, they're in a minority in terms of the whole population uh, those who have thought deeply about this and, and engaged um, closely with animals and, and with the issue and have reached some sort of state of um, uh, resolve um, in relation to um, the killing and consumption um, of these animals but I think you um, two thoughts. One is that um, even in that situation, um, there are often beneath the surface coping mechanisms of which we're partly oblivious. So if you eat cows, but not cats, if you invite one into your home and not the other, if you regularly consume the meat of animals that someone else has killed, then you're leaning on these um, sort of socially entrenched um, coping mechanisms. You know, this this process of categorization is, is profoundly um, powerful. Um, and if um, and if one was suddenly dished up with a horse or a dog, then then there would be a, a very different experience of of eating. Um, so I think that there are often even even um, among those who have reached a state of resolve, um, subtle forms of, of denial which is, which is still at play. And I think that we should become conscious at least of what those um, those coping mechanisms or, or, or modes of denial are. But I, I'm interested in the subtext of your question as well, which is that it's better not to feel. Moral anxiety in relation to killing, and clearly there's a sort of naive form of confusion and sentimentality across society in relation to to meat, which it's good to move beyond and, and transcend. But um, the the Tucano, this this culture that I discussed at length in the book, struck me as as really interesting. Um, Partly because this sense of moral anxiety is deliberately cultivated. It's it's a good thing to feel the full weight of moral and metaphysical responsibility when you're out hunting for a, a deer in the forest. It's it's good that that weighs heavily upon you. And as a child, if you sit down and uh, to eat the the meat, it, it's good that you're told a story wherein you're, um it, it's explained to you that that overconsumption, unnecessary consumption, or um, sort of mindless consumption comes at a really high cost. And um, the you know these sort of t- tales of as they exist in these societies of repercussions. Um, so I'd suggest that there's actually a form of um, sort of enlightened anxiety beyond that resolve, wherein we, we, we live in the conflict a bit more fully and honestly and, and um, recognize the degree to which we do lean on these coping mechanisms um, and let that sort of sense of, of conflict reshape our, our thought and perception um, in, in, in ways which make us, allow us to see more clearly.
0: Yeah, no, no. I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that the ideal state would be one where no one has any any sort of discomfort at all about the idea. And I th- I, but I think that's not what you see when people who I, I spoke to the uh, the name escapes me now the 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 woman who very famously wrote a sort of best selling book about you know, raising her sheep and everything, Rosalind or r- r- up something. And um, you know, she she loves her, her lambs, but still, yeah, it's it's always a moment of of sadness and distress when they have to go to slaughter she doesn't like it they never like it and i think that you do hear that time and again from farmers so reaching that state of as it were being completely unperturbed is a kind of form of uh, inhumanity if you like um but i also wonder whether or not yeah, you know there's, there's a sweet spot here in the sense that you, you talk about the sort of denial and a lot of your book focus on on the denial on the side of people who refuse to acknowledge the gravity of what they're doing when they kill another creature to eat it. I'm just wondering whether you think there's another kind of denial, which is the denial of the necessity of death and killing in in the cycle of life, in the web of life. You know, that the natural world, it depends upon predators and prey. Now, this can be used in a glib way just to justify any kind of animal exploitation. And that, of course, would be wrong. But I, do you think perhaps the, the, the most enlightened people also, and they're not denying that either, they're, they're, they're fully looking in the eye, as it were, the necessity of the web
1: of life to involve some animals killing other animals? Perhaps. I mean, uh, yeah, as you say, there are, there are glib forms of this where we point to the natural world and say, look, killing is natural and normal and therefore humans are predators and let's just get on with it. And there are... Um, Uh, And and there are um, ways of um, positioning that argument which prop up industrialized um, animal agriculture or at least distract us from this ethical imperative which I keep coming back to to limit our killing to to that which is actually necessary. Um, But certainly I think that there are on on, on the flip side on the other side um, among certain parts of the the vegan movement um, there is a a sense in which this, this ethical uh, commitment has become so powerful that it's begun to reshape um the narrative of um sort of human identity to the degree that um humans are portrayed as natural herbivores and um from a deep evolutionary line wherein animal consumption played a marginal role um so we try and sort of reshape the story of of who we are to write this this um th- this killing and our entanglement in 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 a sort of omnivorous um uh, niche uh, out of our story so i think um uh yeah i don't know if it's about degrees of enlightenment but i think the, the there's a there's a real tension there which neither side of the dietary debate likes to face up to yeah i think i think that's um other reviewers
0: have said the same i think one of the great strengths of your book is that it doesn't sort of fall for these polarized simplicities or defending the status quo or or, or, or completely denying any kind of claims of, of meat eating. Of course, one of the striking things about the book is that you do use the word murder for the, eat, uh, the killing and eating of animals, and there's a whole chapter on it. Now, at one point, you do say, I have no idea whether meat is murder is true as a blanket statement, and I suspect it's probably not. But, but in, in the other mentions of the word murder, you, you sort of, certainly speaking from the way you see it, you do feel you need to call it what it is, and for you, that is what it is. It is murder. So, what, why did why did you choose such a strong word, and
1: why are you so convinced that is the right word? So, yeah, when we speak of animals, we we use a, an extraordinary range of euphemisms or, or phrases for their for their killing. They're they're not only killed; they're slaughtered, gassed, processed, exterminated, euthanized, put down, butchered, culled, destroyed. Um, and these words aren't so controversial, but murder seems to cross some sort of line. And I think there are two, two reasons for that. Um, one is that there's a very clear legal definition of the term, um, wherein it's something that one human does to another. Um, so in uh, applying that word in, a, in, a context, in the context of a, an animal's death, you're transgressing some sort of presumed species boundary in a way that implies a severe sort of far reaching, moral and perhaps even legal ramifications. Um, but also because it's, um, uh, I, I think it's controversial, because it brings um, the individuality of the the victim into view. It, it it brings into view that there is a victim. This is what murder is: the premeditated act of violence um, uh, inflicted by one person upon another, um, wherein the the other is robbed of their life. Um, and this is a um, uh, is a highly emotionally charged word. And and I felt that it was appropriate. Um, as a description of, of what I witnessed in the slaughterhouse when I was in proximity to one cow in particular, um, where it was undoubtedly an, an act of violence. And I had the um, vivid perception in that moment of the, the cow's personhood, as different as that was to, to sort of, it, this was a cow person, it wasn't a human person, but there was a, um, a sort of vivid engagement on on uh, w- with that perception. Um, and, and the... The use of the the word throughout the book recurs um, uh, in in the context of this discussion of Indigenous cultures, where uh, there is this repeating perception that meat might involve murder, um, even when it's justified. Um, It's shorthand, essentially, for uh, the sense of being gripped um, by the sense that you're um, taking the life of a a morally important person um an animal person who has not consented to it um in in which context the the word would feel um suitable but it's 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 controversial because it's associated with animal rights and people painting on butcher shop windows and so on
0: yeah i mean it's interesting in terms of like you know what the upshot is what we should practically do i mean actually one question i could ask here is that Uh, I mean, I think we do live at a time in where people often do respond to the moral issues of the day in a sort of highly individualised way. You know, it's it's what can I do? And the solution to everything is to be an ethical consumer. And if I make the right choices, that's the right thing. Uh, Against that, there's kind of an argument that actually, you know, when you look at what's wrong with the food system, it is systemic. It requires societal change. Um, These things are not mutually exclusive, of course, but. If, we, if we're going to sort of uh, f- fix the um, food system and make our relationship with animals uh, more both sustainable and, and more ethical, um, would, would you want people to be pushing more of their own sort of personal choices? Or, or do you think there's a necessity to uh, push for broader societal
1: and political changes? All of the above, yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> uh, we're, we're talking about completely reorienting our, our food system um, we, we need to do this in the next 10 years in the face of the, the climate and nature crises and in light of the, the ethical consequences of the way that we eat. Um, so it's a, a huge change in it, and it begins with a shift in, in government policy. We need changes in business practices. But, but the choices that we make as individuals are important, um, especially in relation to meat consumption, where it's high demand for intensively farmed poultry and pig, which is propping up these, um, these systems that we have here in the UK. So we absolutely need to change the way that we eat. Um, uh, and and I think um, as as part of that, there there is a shift in power that's needed across the the food system. A lot of the the power sits in a small number of hands. These big corporations who are who are behind the, the sort of industrial production of of of, um, of meat and dairy, um, and and a real reallocation of power down to the uh, producers, um, farmers, and and communities uh, is is a key part of this as well. I mean, I'm
0: interested because one of the things you you, you point to and perhaps uh, you can tell me the up-to-date data on this is that you say there's evidence that yeah, in recent years there's been lots of headlines and talks about the rise of veganism um, and lo- lots of, like, striking headline figures. Often these figures are not so striking if you dig beneath the headlines. I mean, for, for example, a tripling of a very small number is still a very, very small number. But I think you say that actually the, the meat-eating has actually increased even as veganism has increased um is that true and how do you explain
1: that yeah um so the discerning the full picture is is difficult because there's no sort of unified data source around meat consumption you can measure it in different ways based on people's food diaries or purchases and so on but certainly what you see across the period from 2013 to, to 2020, um, when vegan diets were, were booming, flexitarianism was all the rage. Um, one in three of us said we were cutting back on meat. There was no discernible decline in, in meat consumption across that period, according, um, according to, to food availability data from the AHDB. Um, and there, d- dig beneath that, and I think the picture becomes quite interesting, because clearly, some of us are eating less meat but some of us are claiming to um, eat, eat much less than we are. And some of us seem to be eating more. And actually there, are, um, there there's research into the, the, the meat paradox in, in social psychology, which reveals some of the mechanisms which might be shaping this. Um, it, it seems that um, uh, there's a gender divide. Women are more inclined to, to under-report their consumption and they're much more inclined to go vegetarian or vegan. Um, something like 80% of participants in Veganuary are, are, are women. Um, and, and men are much more um, likely to dig their heels in and offer um, sort of justifications for their actions, uh, and also potentially to, to increase their consumption. So there's probably been, um, as we've seen in the press, um, this this process of of, of polarization. This, the meat debates become very divided. And at one end of the spectrum, there there are folks who are eating more, and at the other end, there are people who claim to be cutting back. I think a lot a lot more than they actually are. I mean, in terms of bringing around change,
0: I mean awareness of issues in the food system have been there for a long time now so you work for the Soil Association which has been campaigning for this and uh, in most years the Soil Association is able to uh, proudly boast some increases in in the consumption of organic food in the country with a few blips around uh, recessions and things but it's still I mean the, the statistics in your book make it very very plain that it's still the case that the vast majority of the food being produced is being produced in environmentally unsustainable ways, and, and the vast majority of meat and dairy, which is being produced, is being produced in ways which I, I don't think it's. I think most people would find um, unpleasant and objectionable if they if they looked them in the eye. I mean, do you think that's the old the old ways of campaigning have uh, proven themselves to be ineffective? Uh, do we need to
1: be doing something different about this? Oh, that's a big question. I mean, certainly yes, the the old ways of campaigning haven't got us to to where we need to be. Um, And I think that um, a a lot of, uh, there's a big link um, between the the fossil fuel agenda actually and the industrial animal farming agenda. It's not an obvious link in in many people's eyes, but these um, systems of sort of mass meat and dairy production are only possible because of um, fossil fuel-based fertilizers and the production of these cheap commodity crops as, as feedstock. And we're already seeing, in the context of the, the Ukraine crisis, um, that that um, and, and a pre-existing gas price challenge, um, that fertilizers are becoming um, more difficult to access for farmers, um, grain prices are escalating, and some of these systems of um, uh, intensive uh, meat production, which have been highly profitable for many years, are starting to look uh, a bit shaky. Um, uh, or, or at least it's becoming increasingly obvious that they're not going to be viable in, in the long run. So I think drawing uh, in terms of the sort of new frontier of campa- campaigning, um, teasing out the role of fossil fuel inputs in, in into animal agriculture is, is going to be the key, I think, because um, these systems have no future if we're going to move to a post-carbon economy. I mean, it, but how this
0: is steered, I think, is, is a very big open question, isn't it? Because there are plenty of people arguing the fact that, you know, a... Uh, uh, more environmentally sustainable greener and more animal friendly farming is you know lockstep with more environmental farming but you also see people arguing that actually if we want to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions we need to get ruminants indoors uh fed on things which produce less methane and so forth i mean do you worry that actually the climate agenda is is going to be used by people to maintain an animal production system which uh keeps us uh, isolated from having
1: to confront this this paradox yeah i mean we're, we're already seeing this um in, in relation to um uh, poultry in particular in the uk which is framed as a sort of climate friendly meat because when you look at grams of protein per emissions it's meant to be better than beef and so on so there's um there's a sort of narrow a narrow climate lens which um can be adopted which is hugely damaging and and, and sits um Uh, in in opposition to a a much broader agroecological approach, which looks at climate, nature and animal welfare in the whole uh, and so on. Um, But but ultimately, um, uh, it it, it comes down to a question of curtailing the use of of fossil fuels and and, and fossil fuel-based inputs. Um, And uh, these these arguments which are being made for the sustainability of intensification in relation to animal farming are are not going to they're not going to last in the long run and there's technological disruptions which are emerging as well in terms of lab-grown meat and cellular agriculture which might, um, which might further uh, tip the system into a, an altered state. Um, uh, so, so I think that it's everything still to play for and, and um, time is tight but we, we can bring about this, this wholesale transition that we need to this decade. Uh, just
0: to sort of like perhaps get as we're getting towards the end, uh, a lot of people who can conser- con- share your concerns, uh, a lot of people have reviewed your book favourably and everything. They advocate for something which is sometimes called called ethical omnivory, and it's this idea which, in the sense, sounds quite reassuring. That actually, you know, if we source our animal products well from good farms and everything, we can, you know, we we can eat the full range of foods which we have evolved to eat and enjoy them and have a clear conscience now clearly there's a sense in which what you're advocating is precisely that but i can also get a sense that there's there's a certain kind of hint of skepticism about this idea of ethical omnivory if you like am i right to pick up on that what is what is it and if so what is it about that idea which you are a little bit wary of perhaps
1: well i think most people would claim to be ethical omnivores um but um uh, are typically um Pretty detached from from the realities of um, uh, of uh, Of food production in particular the the slaughter of animals and reliant on all sorts of evasive strategies this is what the book explores and and lots of this is um in spite of our best intentions this is a book that's really positive about uh human nature and human intentions we are deeply empathetic and we do want the best but we are caught up in this system of um uh, denial and, and distraction which um keeps us from from engaging with the the moral consequences of our of our diet um so i think that uh ethical omnivory can, or usually is, um, a sort of blanket that we wrap around ourselves. Um, But I also challenge the idea um, in the book that that what we typically think of as higher welfare, free range, better animal farming, that, that that's really the end of the story. Um, I think there are um, significant questions that can still be posed um, about those systems. And I think we should look at those systems, these sort of higher welfare organic systems as the, um, the foundation we build from, not, not the ceiling that we aspire to. You know, This is the very least that we should be doing. Um, and then beyond that, there are all sorts of difficult questions to unpick about um, how animals should live, um, what sort of lives we should give them, how many do we really need to be farming and how how many do we really need to be consuming, which um, are much bigger questions. It's slightly pie in the sky at the moment because we've got big things to deal with. But I think it's important um, that we look beyond what we typically think of as as higher welfare um, uh, and ask ourselves some serious challenges, um, serious serious questions and challenge ourselves to to think about um, the the full ethical consequence of of our diets and and challenge ourselves to take seriously um, the the vegan proposal, that maybe we don't need animals in our food system. That doesn't mean you have to um, succumb to that conclusion immediately. But let's let's take it seriously and, and let's think about what niche, if any, animals should play in in a future in a future farming system.
0: And finally, it seems to me there's a sense in which you kind of want to leave your readers uh, both a bit uncomfortable, but also somewhat uncertain. And I mean, one thing I noticed was it, I don't think. Get, uh, tell me if I missed it, but I don't think in the book you ever actually explicitly say what your own sort of dietary decisions are. What exactly you you eat and don't is that because you too are in a position where you're you're really not sure yourself what, what ideally
1: you should be eating and and how. Um, so I I, I I position myself squarely as a as a non-vegan because that that that's what I am. Um, but I, I eat plants on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I am, yeah, sitting in this this space where I where I see animals as having a a, a role, um, certainly in the near future in in our farming system, and and it being really important that we support those those organic farmers and agroecological farmers who are who are uh, trying to resolve the climate and nature crisis. So I think um, uh, I, I also wanted to resist the temptation to. Present there being a, a single straightforward solution to this. I think there are, are a sort of sustainable diets can sit within a, a, a spectrum. There's there's no one single dietary pattern which is sustainable, um, and there's a real um, ethical conundrum. Uh, which which is presented in the book, which we each have to to work through in our own way. And what the book tries to do is um, help the reader find their space in this debate in a a slightly different way, understand that there are these um, cognitive and cultural um, pressures, um, which are shaping their thought and behavior in unexpected ways, um, uh, and and hopefully present a tale in which um, the, the sort of Slightly conflicted emotions of, of meat make sense um, and, and feel like an important part of, of who we are, so that we can begin to respond to, to all this in a, in a more coherent manner. Well, I mean, I think one of the great strengths of
0: the book is that it doesn't shy away from the complexities, it doesn't give us neat answers, but it certainly gives us a lot to, to, to think about. And it's been great speaking to you, Rob. I'm afraid. That's all we've got time for. So thank you, Rob, and thank you for everyone who tuned in to watch. If you would like to dig even deeper into the many contradictions and and problems of the meat paradox, Rob's book is out now. And you can find a link and details of a 20% discount in the live chat now. You can also visit the RSA's website to find out more about the Regenerative regenerative Futures programme of work and how to get involved in the work of the growing global fellowship so for now thanks again for joining us Uh, thanks once more to rob and we'll see you all next time thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations